Welcome to the Real Life Fitness Stories podcast. I'm your host, Scott Roberts. Stick around for inspiring real-life stories of incredible resilience and achievement. Thank you for listening. Let's be inspired. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Real Life Fitness Stories. We've got another amazing guest for you. Really excited to get into this. We have the amazing Lucy Curran. Hello. How are you? Hello. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on and talking to us. Do you just want to give the listeners a very brief introduction to yourself and then we'll explain what we're going to talk about? Yeah, so I'm Lucy, I'm 30. Um, I'm from Warrington, finance manager from Warrington. Um, and that's kind of me. Right, so this is the first episode where I'm going to change the introduction a little bit because you're going to do it for me. <laughs> so basically, before these episodes, I get the guests to send me a brief message about what we're going to talk about. There's a few problems. Lucy's <laughs> story isn't very brief. Um, half the stuff she mentioned, I don't know what it is, which is the beauty of these podcasts and the reason I want to do it. I don't even know how to pronounce some of the words. So do you have your phone with you? Yeah, well, um, yeah. <laughs> right. go, go back to that message that you sent me. So let me get that up. Um, you're, you're on your phone now, aren't you? Right, yes. Yeah. So um, it, it starts in 2021. So briefly, um, I got diagnosed. Literally list it. List it. Okay. And then so January 2021, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Um, I went through fertility treatment and then the treatment for that was chemo and radiotherapy. Um, I received the all clear in August 21. Then June 22, I found out it had come back, um, but it was contained just to my pelvis. But that was the, the only shot cure for it was surgery. Um, so the surgery was pelvic extensoration surgery. It's quite a mouthful. Um, they removed my everything from pelvis um, and created a stoma. So my bladder was removed and I've now got a stoma. Um, October 22, I got the all clear again. They said the margins were clear from the surgery. Then end of October 22, I got a bowel blockage um, and then sepsis. Um, and then where we are today is, um, this is actually slightly updated since then. Um, I've got had a decline in my kidney function and had nephroscopy bags fitted, um, which is basically a bag in each kidney, that, the tube that comes from each kidney. But I've had those removed since I sent out that message. So... <laughs> So right now you know why I didn't want to read all that out and why this podcast may be about seven hours long. <laughs> uh, so let's go back to January 2021. So you was what, 27, 28? 28, yeah. Just turned 28 in the December. So before we get to like symptoms and things like that, how did life look for you back then in regards to work, socially, relationships, things like that? Um, so we were just kind of coming coming to some form of normality, but not because it would come out the back of COVID. Yeah. Um, so 2020, it, I was on furlough from like the duration of um, COVID. I 
went back to work kind of part-time because they, they didn't need us as much. I worked for um, doing accounts for bars and restaurants. So obviously they weren't full capacity again. Um, and I'd actually got a PT and was in the gym. I was, I was probably in the best fitness wise I was, I'd, I'd ever been. Um, it's the first time I'd ever enjoyed going to the gym, enjoyed exercise, and I had the opposite time to do it because I was furloughed. Um, married, um, and just life was life was pretty normal, really. So, what, symptom wise, what started to happen? When did you start to think something's not right here? So. The October 2020, um, I had an episode of bleeding and it was really minor. So, and I am a doctor avoider. I'm, I don't, I'm not a sick person. I, I just crack on with it. So I'd also been really rubbish. This isn't an advocate um, with taking my pill. So I'd been taking an old one, then I'd stopped, then I started because of COVID and because obviously not getting appointments and things. So I had this like episode of breakthrough bleeding and I just put it down to that because like I said, it was really minor. Um, then December came, so that was in the October, then December came and I had another episode, but that time it was a lot heavier. Um, and as I've got older, I've got more squeamish. So it made me really lightheaded. And so, it, but I just put it down to the fact that it, I was looking at the blood. Um, but actually it's because of the amount that I'd lost that it obviously it had drained me a bit. So my husband went and got me a Lucozade, I think probably told me to put my feet up. And we, we, he was like, you need to go to the doctors at some point, but again, put it off. Yeah. Um, and then it was in between Christmas and New Year. Um, it, I had an, it, 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 I felt like I'd wet myself. That's the only way I can describe it. Right. Um, and so I had this episode, I felt like I wet myself and I thought that's not right. I don't know what that is. Um, so then I think it was like the 4th of January I rang when the doctors obviously had opened after Christmas I rang and got an appointment and I just had my letter to say that I was due for my next smear um, so I rang and just said I'm due for my smear test but I've had these couple of symptoms don't know if you want to check that out first um, and they said yeah come in and we'll do that first so I went and I think they knew straight away um, they did a, a smear-like test. It wasn't a smear, but basically same thing. Um, and I bled really heavily. Um, so they did like a pregnancy test, STI test to rule everything out. Um, and then put me on the two-week pathway from there, which is obviously if you've got any symptoms, you, you should have all your tests and diagnosis and whatever within two weeks. Um, so they put me on that and within 10 days I had a diagnosis. In when you first went to the doctors, I'm, I'm just thinking in regards to lockdown and COVID and everything, were you able to get in quite quick? I cannot follow my doctors one bit. I mean, it's the horror stories you hear from people being diagnosed and fobbed off from symptoms and whatever, they were amazing. I literally, they did, like I said, the pregnancy test, STI test, blood test straight away. She said she was sending me for an ultrasound um, and then... It was all a bit of a blur. So I remember her saying an ultrasound. And then I remember getting out and ringing my husband and saying, they said an ultrasound and something else, but I can't remember what. And then straight away, the text came through saying two week cancer pathway. So I was like, right, okay. Um, but that was, I think that was, must have been on the Monday. I think the Friday I had um, a colposcopy, which is basically an in-depth smear, like we shine a light in. Um, and then on the Sunday, I had the ultrasound, so everything was really quick. 
So when the diagnosis did come through, how did that hit you? I knew. Wow. And I think, obviously, you Google and you tell you not to Google, but I knew something wasn't right. Like, I'm not somebody who'd suffered with, you know, like heavy periods or anything abnormal. I knew that that wasn't my normal. Um, and when I went for the colposcopy, the... Because they were trying to get a biopsy and because I was bleeding so heavily, she was really struggling to get it. And at, at first, when I'd gone into the appointment, she said, you know, there's, there's loads of reasons you could be bleeding. There's like, you were kind of a road, so there's different reasons anyway. Um, and then when at the end of the appointment, she said, right, get dressed and just come and sit back down for a second. So I went and sat back down and she, she just said, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I'm, I'm a bit concerned about what I've seen. And I was like, right, that's fine. So she said, I'll book you in for an appointment for your results next week um, and feel free to bring somebody with you. So obviously at that point I knew because it was COVID and you wasn't allowed people with you in hospitals. So when the appointment came, I took my mum with me. Um, I think it was probably more just a case of, right, I've got an answer. Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't upset. I didn't cry. It, the way I described it to the nurse was it's shit bad luck mm. it's cancer is now one in two people isn't it so it's statistics someone's got to get it yep that, that's a positive way of looking <laughs> <laughs> so was that was that your outlook from the start yeah um and my so you then go into kind of this like waiting game you then have to get a PET scan and an MRI scan to stage you and it's kind of you're living on somebody else's time um which was the, probably the most frustrating bit but from the start they were always the, the the plan was to treat me to cure so you get the um letter to either say you know you're treating to prolong life or you're treating to cure mine was always treating to cure so for me it was just kind of like let's get started there's there's a plan in place you put your trust in other people and you, you crack on with it yeah because um, we, we've had another podcast actually with my sister-in-law who's had breast cancer twice and she, she kind of said the same thing you, you're putting your trust in other people um, yeah. luckily by the sounds of it you was getting good advice you was getting quick advice and you trusted what they were saying but also you've, you've just got to get on with it yeah there's, there's nothing else you can do there's nothing there's, and you know I'm not taking away I think it was scary for obviously everyone around me and everyone deals with things differently. But for me, I just, I didn't see the point in wallowing. It wasn't going to change anything. So I may as well just get on with it. Um, at that point though, my main focus really, I wasn't thinking about cancer, I was thinking about my fertility. So I was trying to push getting fertility side done because obviously once the treatment was complete, I would go straight into menopause. The radiation from where it is on your pelvis would put you into menopause. So I think that was my focus while waited for my treatment. And then once I'd gotten my treatment, my, my focus was getting through the treatment. So the fertility treatment and the egg freezing, was that you pushing for it? Was that them suggesting it? or a mixture? I pushed for it. I think if, if I hadn't have pushed for it, you probably would have just been swept straight up into treatment. Um, but I, I pushed for it and luckily that's because I'd seen other people like but obviously when I got diagnosed I looked on Instagram and I'd seen other people had done that um, so I asked for it and the first time it didn't work um, and the consultant said you know your body's got bigger fights on its hand fertility isn't isn't its main focus right now so it didn't work 
Um, and I, rightly or wrongly, people may agree, people may disagree. I, with, I pushed back on my treatment again because I wanted another go at it. Because right. people, and it was a really tough decision to make because I think my mum was just up the wall she wanted my treatments to just start and obviously every day is a ticking time bomb isn't it cancer grows you don't know how quick it's growing but my my main thought process was they haven't got to live the rest of my life with not being a mum so yeah it's great you know treatment and keeping me here and whatever but I've then got to live the rest of that life not having a baby and, and that's what I wanted so um, I discussed it with my consultant. I discussed it with, um, you get a CNS nurse, a clinical specialist nurse. Um, and they just said, ultimately, ultimately it's down to you, but we're happy for you to give it another shot. Some, some consultants will say, absolutely not. Um, so even just the first round of fertility, they'll say you've not got time. So when she said, it's up to you, but you know, if you want to give it another go, you can. I just said, right, I need to give it another go. So just before we get um, onto the treatment, the chemo and the radiotherapy, you, obviously you mentioned it affected your mum and she was panicking quite understandably. <laughs> How did it affect those close to you in, regard, in regards to your husband, your mum, friends? My husband was very laid back, what he always is, and there's... I always say, you know there's a fine line but I probably would have preferred that than somebody fretting every minute you know catastrophizing you're gonna die this and the other he just can't keep the same as me he just got on with it um but my mum my mum's a doer we've always called her the fixer since we were young so she she ran work straight away and just said I'm taking this time off or can I take this time off and they were really good with her um we moved back into my mum's so that she could take me to my treatment every day Okay. Um, so she she probably saw the brunt of it really. She got the worst end of the stick, but she she's she's somebody that she needs to be doing something all the time. That's her way of helping. So like she had a focus on looking after me, and that was it. And you know, making sure I was all right, getting my appointments scheduled up to date, getting me there for the appointments. That was her way of coping. So talk us through the chemo and the radiotherapy. What, what exactly was involved for you? How often, over what time period? So my chemo was once a week. That was the first day. Um, and radiotherapy was every day um, for initially six weeks. And then he's supposed to have something for cervical cancer, something called brachytherapy, um, which they say is like the gold standard of cervical cancer treatment. And it's basically internal radiation. Um, and I was planning for three sessions of that, but when I, they put you under general for it, when I woke up, they couldn't, they couldn't do it um, where they needed to get to. They basically put, it's awful, it's quite barbaric, they put metal rods inside you um, and you have to sleep in them, stay with them overnight, you have to lie flat for basically hours on end overnight. Um, they, do it, they can do it in different ways, but that's how mine was planned, and then they deliver a dose of radiation to, to the metal rods um but the way that my like my anatomy was basically they couldn't get to where the tumor was because it would have meant perforating my womb um so th that was off the cards for me so after that I then had an extra two weeks of external radiation on top instead of the brachytherapy and what kind of impact well I suppose mentally and physically did that treatment have on you it's draining 
yeah. it's really draining. I think it probably only got to week one and as we pulled up to the hospital, I was like, I cannot do this for another six, six weeks. Um, and the chemo, I, I think obviously from TV and whatever, you expect chemo to be awful, um, but they were probably my better days. The radiotherapy took it out of me more. Um, the, the first week I had chemo was hellish. So I had it on Thursday and the entire weekend I was really poorly. I was sick. It was just horrible. Um, but they'd not given me any steroids. I don't know what the thought process was behind that, whether they just tried with me without see if I was fine or, or what, but um, my anti-sickness wasn't great and I had no steroids. So the next week I just said I was really poorly and they said, right, we'll give you the steroids then. So after that, my chemo days were, were great. And for three days afterwards, you take the steroids. So you, you they give you a high and they kind of get you through. Um, so they were my better days. Obviously my appetite comes back. I've got energy. They, they were better days, but radiotherapy, um, it's cumulative. So you actually feel the worst two weeks after you've finished your radiotherapy, but obviously it's a snowball. It, it gets worse as the weeks go on. And that's things like, obviously with it being to your pelvis, it affects your bowels, affects you, it makes you feel sick. Um, like it, you can't really eat that much. So it, it's just, it, and it's, it's the exhaustion. I've never experienced fatigue like in my entire life and there's, there was there's no way to describe it to somebody um when people say oh yeah you're tired it, it's it's not just tired it's it's literally you can't function I'd get up in the morning have a shower and then I'd have to go and lie back down in bed it's that kind of you've just got nothing in you so obviously that was thankfully successful and you was given the all clear in August so the treatment started in March of 2021. You was given the all clear in August 2021. In August, when you was given the all clear, what was the advice from the specialists? <laughs> there isn't any. Um, you literally picked out and kind of, it's kind of like, okay, go live your life. Um, and as I said before, you've, you've spent so much, and as your sister-in-law said, you've spent so much time on somebody else's time and having somebody organize all your appointments and you focus on the next step and this that and the other and you're rolled into it so you kind of you chewed up and spat back out again um and I remember saying to them you know what should I, what should I be doing with my diet or what should I be doing like work-wise or and they were just like go live your life as you did before but that's what got me into that mess so, <laughs> so there's kind of a well something, something went wrong last time um, um how did the recovery look for you obviously you're given the all clear but you know you're not 100% physically how long did it take for you to kind of I suppose feel back to normal again physically in, in regards to energy and things like that I don't think I ever have recovered properly um like I say once you've had the pelvic radiation you went to menopause so then you're kind of dealing with menopause symptoms as well um and my energy my energy obviously probably came back to some extent and I felt like I was functioning fine, but then it came, my cancer came back again. So I feel like for the last two years or so, I've never probably got to that optimum what I was functioning at pre-cancer. Did they give any advice in regards to it coming? Did they say there may be a risk of it coming back? I suppose there's always a small risk anyway, but did so, they Yes, yeah, so cervical cancer statistics aren't really great and it's, it's kind of um 
I think people think it's kind of a good cancer because people people have this this thing that there's good cancers and bad cancers um and obviously the treatment you don't lose your hair so I don't know that people think it's not that invasive or but if you catch cervical cancer early your statistics are like I can't remember what they are now your five-year survival rate are in the 90s for stage two it drops to about 75 um stage three then drops drastically to about 40 percent um whereas if you compare that to something like bowel cancer a stage three bowel cancer is still 75 percent so the there is probably always a risk of it coming back and your treatment and whatever and obviously chemo is great it it, it i say great in a loosely sense of the word but chemo gets does what it needs to but obviously damages and kills all your healthy cells at the same time and your immune system takes a battering so you kind of then on a slippery slope I suppose of your immune system is not in a great place if your cells start functioning in a way they shouldn't again they're not in the best place to start attacking them. So August is when you got the all clear 2021 more or less a year after June 22 you find out it's come back what what were the symptoms for that? Was it was it a regular checkup that found? <laughs> so again, um, I was I was left for way longer than I should have been. Um, you should be checked from, from other people that I've spoken to. People get checked like three monthly, um, and it's an in person check. Some people get scanned, some people don't, um, and that's it depends. Kind of postcode lottery it depends where you are. Mine is an actual cancer hospital. It's not just a hospital that you know treats cancers. It's a specific cancer hospital, so you kind of expect them to be gold standard, and they just weren't. Um, and I'd questioned how regularly I would have scans when my treatment ended, and they just said we don't unless you've got symptoms, we don't do them. So I was like, right, okay. And there is a there's a risk of radiation. I've already had radiation, so I, I get it. Um, but at the minimum my checkups were four monthly but they should I, I believe they should have been in person I don't know anybody else who I've spoken to who had phone checkups because what's a phone checkup going to do how do I know if I've got cancer in my body I don't um so they uh, around the 11 months mark I'd had the symptoms again of kind of feeling like I was wetting myself um and I'd been seeing a menopause specialist because obviously bladder function and everything is a part of menopause incontinence is, is a menopause symptom so I went to see a menopause specialist and she said you know this is really common um she gave me estrogen um for I, I was already on estrogen that I took like topically um on like my arms and she gave me vaginal estrogen and said that might help and then I, I just rang the hospital and just said you know I've got symptoms so can somebody see me um, and they did and she said straight away it, something's not right if it doesn't feel right so we knew again at that point that I think it had come back so same question as before then I suppose how did that hit you because you was obviously very positive well tried to be very positive about it first time around was it different second time around it was because in that waiting game of waiting for a scam and whatever um the, again, with cervical cancer, your treatment options are really limited. So if it comes back again, there is no, and you, you go back to chemo treat kind of treatment, it's not to cure. So you don't get around to it. 
your, your treatment option the second time around if it's spread anywhere else in your body is you treating to prolong your life um and the statistics out there are around 12 months i've seen people outlive that and they're living and they're just they're, they're on treatment forever um but it's no life and chemo the damage that it does to you you know like your, your senses your nerve endings and everything it's not something sustainable forever but i have seen people you know beat them statistics but that's the statistics that they give you it's like you're looking at a 12 month mark um so for me i knew the other if it was contained to pelvis the surgery is pelvic accentuation surgery um which is everything in your pelvis and there's there's different variations of that there's everything which is full pelvic accentuation there's anterior which is front pelvis or the posterior which is back pelvis um so i was praying that it was obviously just contained to there and then I was praying that they would do the surgery and agree to it and and that would be my treatment option. So you seem quite headstrong in, in all the choices you've made you seem quite headstrong about them all how, yeah. easy, how easy was that decision for you? Again I think you just it's fight or flight isn't it? Like you, you literally go into fight or flight, and I think my my body obviously goes into fight, um, which I'm grateful for. But I think I am very, I'm very resilient. Like I said, I'm not a sickly person, and I'm not. I'd like to think I'm not really a wallower, and I'm not taken away from people who choose choose to, you know, like do that because everyone's different. Um, but for me, I just want to get it done. I just want. I want a plan. I want. I want. I just want to keep moving forward with it um so and, and as well in that kind of 11 month period of of dealing with no cancer um it, it became quite apparent you've got to advocate for yourself because you know otherwise you, you get left behind in, in a treatment system so I had to advocate and say to the surgeons listen I've read up about all the surgery if it means I have one stoma if it means I have two stomas if it means I lose everything that's fine um but that's, if that's my only treatment option, go for it, just do it. Um, and I remember the doctor, she said to me, she passed me over to the nurse and I remember saying, I think she's the calmest person I've ever had sat in the chair discussing surgery so big. Um, but to me, that was my cure. So I had to, that I didn't have another option. And did they, did they agree to that surgery pretty easily? Was it, was there a fight? So they obviously, they said that's your only curative option, so we'll go for it. Um, but then the surgery, I think the surgery only comes with like a, a maybe 50% chance of working anyway. Um, so the statistics even with the surgery aren't great. Um, but so they said, they give me all the risks and, and everything and, and said, you know, we're happy to go ahead because that's your only shot. And I said, yeah, that's fine. Um, but before before then the surgery was then scheduled and everything they did um what's called a cystoscopy i think it is i might have even got that wrong um but it's basically a camera into your bladder so they went in and had a look uh, they took another biopsy just to make sure it was definitely cancer even though we knew it was um and they did a cancer to see if, uh, sorry a, a camera to see if the cancer was in my bladder um and when i came around from that they'd said it was much worse than the scanner show so the cancer was invading more areas than than they thought um, and at that point the surgeon was kind of like it's borderline whether we go ahead with it or not um, and I was just like please just do it um, said what's what's the risks because 
in my head, I was kind of like, well, just go in, take whatever you need to, uh, get as much as you can, and then we go from there. Um, but obviously they see it as by doing that, you're weakening your body, you're putting your body under stress, taking that surgery. It's not going to be for a cure anyway. They'd rather just put you to the chemo option. Um, so at that point when I went back to the consultant, then she just said, listen, it's, you know, 50, I think it's 50-50 of it working. She said, in your case, it's a lot less. Um, but I think we, we do it because that's your only shot. And I was like, wholeheartedly agree. Please don't send me on my way. <laughs> um, so she 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 was like, yeah, do it. Um, and I'm so grateful that they did because obviously touch wood, it worked. Like, can you just talk us through exactly what the procedure is and how how long is the operation and recovery period? So for my surgery, um, mine was just front pelvis in the end, so they didn't have to create a stoma. So that was everything like basically full hysterectomy, womb, uterus, ovaries, um, bladder, um, and they took part of my vagina as well, the top part. Um, so the recovery... They, they, they're quite good to be fair. The, the surgery, I think, was about eight hours. Um, but they, they get you up and moving the, literally the next day. Um, so you're up, you're moving. And then recovery is, is kind of, I suppose, at your own pace. Um, I was home from the hospital. They'd said maybe two weeks, but I was home within a week. Um, and I think you just recover better at home anyway, don't you? you there's no beeping machines doctors coming in at 6 30 in the morning so as soon as I got home that's when my recovery probably started um and I think by the time I come for my checkup which was the October I think the, the I remember the doctor kind of double taking and he was like oh as we pass each other in the corridor and he's oh I'm in with you next he's like god you're looking really well so I think I'd, I'd, at that point I was back on my feet I was just obviously doing l little things um and just getting back to normal from there so that i'm getting lost here so that's september <laughs> 2022 and yeah that was the surgery october you're given the all clear again yeah and then that same month <laughs> bowel blockage and sepsis yeah just just explain all that for us please so when you obviously when they've gone in and done all that surgery they've created they created my stoma um so my stoma is now instead of a bladder so i wee into a bag um sorry ju yeah just explain what a stoma is so that's basically what it is that you can not have a poo or a wee bag um mine's wee because i've not got a bladder um and they, they use part of your bowel to create that so they'll split your bowel and part of it still does for me, I, I go to the toilet for a poo in the same way. Um, but the other part is then now it's just an opening on my body. It's a tiny hole um, and that attaches to a bag every day. And I go to the toilet. I go for a wee in that. Um, so that is what a stoma is. And that's more or less what? On your hip? Just above your hip? It's kind of like there. So that's my bag there. It's like, yeah, above, above my hip, kind of belly button height. So what's life like? Living, living with that I think I've adapted to it quite well um it's there's there's so many days when I don't even really think about it I just I go about my day-to-day -day life it, and I go to the toilet in the same way I just empty bag instead of going the way that I used to 
Um, there's but there's some days when it's you know if my bag leaks or especially if it's the middle of the night and it's then like full bedding change and there's some days where it's I'm a bit like God this is my life forever. Um, but on the whole, it, it doesn't really hinder me in any way. Um, and I just kind of, I get on with it. What about socially and things like that in regards to, I don't know, does it affect what clothes you wear? Yeah, yeah, it does. Are you more conscious when you're out, things like that? I think I'm quite, I'm quite lucky that I'm quite an open person. So as soon as somebody asks me a question about it, I'll show them whether they want to see it or not. I'm like, okay, have a look. Um, and I'm quite... You know, that's the dog, sorry. Um, Barney. Um, so, like, I've found things like going to festivals and whatever, it's great because I can wean a cup. I, I don't have to go and queue it. In fairness, in a festival, most people do anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But mine's just a bit easier. I don't have to take my pants down. <laughs> um, but it, it, it does affect things like what I wear. And because it's... So with a, like a colostomy bag, which is, or an ileostomy, which is poo, obviously some people's are really active, don't get me wrong, but obviously you only poo so many times a day. So there's a lot of a time of the day where it, your bag will be flat, it will be, it's not active, whereas mine is a constant trickle. Um, it's, it's So it, it fills constantly. I have to change, like empty it, sorry, quite a lot. So when I am wearing anything that's tight, you can see it ballooning like gradually. So there is... There is obviously downsides to it and, and people probably would know from looking at it, but I just think it, it is what it is. If people would say, what's that? Or to question it. And most people, obviously well, everyone around me knows what it is. Um, but I would, I'd just use it as a, as a way of education, you know, it's a stoma and, and that's what I weigh until back. <laughs> have, you, have you been able to get back into exercise yet? Oh, I've... I've I mean, I've, I've been very rubbish. Um, I I walk the dog currently. That's about the extent of it. <laughs> um, but I, I should be, I'm signed off to get back into exercise. Um, I'm probably just a bit cautious because with a stoma, because obviously it's an opening on your body, you're at risk of a hernia quite easily. So I've got a support belt um, upstairs that's, that you get to order three of them a year for free, like through a prescription. So I have got one now. Um, it's just a case of putting it to, to good use because like I say, if it was a case of just fitness wise and like my energy levels, I feel fine to probably go back to the gym, but I'm probably cautious of what I can do and what I should be doing and how I should be moving in a way. So you put off exercise and going to see the doctor? Basically, yeah. Out about you. I've changed in the last two years. I do now hound the doctors. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so let's just go back to the, the bowel blockage, the sepsis, um, and the word that I can't pronounce, nephra. Nephrostomy. <laughs> Talk us through that. So the bowel blockage came first, um, and it basically is all the results of surgery. So when you've had a surgery like that, you're inside to for want of a better word, the doctor describes me as sticky. Um, That's what you want to hear, isn't it? <laughs> literally, I could, have, I could have lived the rest of my life with never having my insides being called sticky. Um, so, and scar tissue forms inside and you get things called adhesions. Um, and it just makes everything a bit 
harder to move around. So my bowel blockage came um, basically from my surgery, everything becomes sluggish. As soon as your bowel gets touched, it just goes into a bit of a shutdown and it takes a while to get it moving back, back properly. And mine has never really gone back to normal. Um, and at this point, a year on, I probably don't think it ever will. Some people's do, some people's don't. Um, so I have to take like a gentle laxative for mine. Um, but at the time, obviously, I was only a month out of surgery. It was just really, really sluggish. Um, and it, it, I just, I, I think I'd got home one night and I just said to my mum, I feel sick. And I'm like I say, I'm not, apart from if I've ever had like, you know, like a bug, I've never, I'm not a sick, like sickly person. So I feel really sick. So I went and got in bed for a bit and I just like laid and then I started being sick. Um, and I've read about bowel blockages. So I was like, right, this is classic signs. Um, so I rang, my mum rang the ambulance first, like 111 to get some advice. They said, go to A&E. Um, so I went to A&E. And they confirmed it's a bowel blockage, but luckily my bowel twisted and then it untwisted itself. Um, so they didn't have to go in and do any more surgery or anything like that. And then I think I stayed a couple of days in hospital from, from that while they just made sure that I was pumped with loads of fluids. Um, it corrected itself, everything was fine. And then the day I was being discharged, my kidney was really hurting. Well, what I thought was my back was really hurting. And I just thought, oh, I've been in a hospital bed. I've been sat in A&E for 24 hours, throwing up. I'm just, I'm worn out. Um, so they discharged me. And on the way to the car, I said to my mum, my back's really hurting. And she said, should we go back? I don't want to, this to turn into anything else. Should we just go back? And I was like, no, I just want my own bed. Let's get home. Um, and same again, like the pain just wasn't going away. And then I woke up the next morning and I was being sick. So I rang the GP and I just said, I've got these symptoms. Um, my, my temperature was through the roof as well, which is a classic sign of infection. Um, and he kind of fogged me off a little bit. Um, but I said to him, can you please just ring the hospital? Um, because I can bypass a and &E. They've given me this number to ring these clinical decisions. Can you just ring them for me and, I, and it'll bypass a and &E so I don't have to go and sit in a and &E for hours? Um, and he said, no, I can't, I'm too busy. And so I got off the phone and I literally said to my mum, it's a good job I've not got sepsis. And she was like, I thought the same thing. I mean, I don't know how we diagnose I've not got sepsis at this point because we didn't know. But she said, I'm taking you to the hospital. So we just went and we just went straight to clinical decisions. And I just said, I think my doctor said he was going to ring ahead, even though he hadn't. Um, but they took one look at me and they were like, no, we'll get you a bed. And then from there, it obviously turned out that it was a kidney infection. Um, and it turned into sepsis because... With a stoma, the risk of a, with a urostomy, obviously the signs of a, of a water infection would be burning when you wee or needing to go to the toilet more frequently. I don't have them symptoms because it goes into a bag so, and I don't have a bladder. Um, so then initial symptoms, which are normally a warning sign, I miss. So it had gone straight from a water infection and hit my kidneys. Um, and it's because where my, the kidney, the tubes that go from your kidneys would normally go into your bladder when they'd taken them out and re-implanted them back into my bowel one of them has then formed scar tissue um so it, it the, the wee wasn't draining properly um and that's what then hit my kidneys went into sepsis like septic shock um and it, that was that I think that's probably the scariest of all the things that's happened that's the scariest um because they just couldn't stabilize my observations and my heart rate was 
through the roof at like 100 my resting heart rate was about 156 I think um and my blood pressure was just getting lower and lower and lower um and at that point obviously you're at risk of stroke or heart attack because you, your body's just not doing what it should be doing so that's how long, when how long did this go on for so that lasted probably like I don't I can't remember what time I got to the hospital um and they were trying to stabilize me probably for five five six hours was getting worse they were pumping me with antibiotics and um, to try and stabilize it and it just wasn't working and then that's when they then said right we're gonna do a met call which is basically they push a button and doctors come running in from every angle of the hospital um and they took me up to theater and that's when they put the defrostomy bag in um so you're awake and they basically pierce your back um and put a tube straight into your kidney to drain the fluid and to drain the septic fluid out of your kidney which was the worst thing I've ever been through. <laughs> um, was you was you put under for that or was you awake? Fully awake. Fucking hell. Yeah. Um, so and obviously your kidney, my kidney was so inflamed because it, it was they had an infection on it. So it was really, really painful. Um, and then from there, then I spent, I think it was like a week on on high dependency. Well, they then got my my observations stable and and fought the infection that way. So that that's kind of October. How long how long was you in hospital after that? So I was in for a, a week, I think, with that, um, and then they swapped me to oral antibiotics. Went home from that, and then I think I had that nephrostomy bag in for like six six weeks ish, and then they swapped it to a stent. So they just they took the bag out, put a stent in to keep that tube open. Um, and then I'd had that from December time to, uh, well, it was like a couple of weeks ago when I went for a, a checkup and my kidneys were back under strain again. <laughs> right. So, well, yeah, that, this takes us up to July. We've got through this quicker than I thought, actually. We're doing this. <laughs> so... Yeah, talk us about that point where they started to, where, where they found that your kidney function had declined and everything else. So from the stent, I knew a stent isn't forever. Um, some people can, can live with them forever and it basically just keeps, like say, that tube open. Um, but they need changing every three to six months. So because of my age, she just said I'd rather do corrective surgery for it rather than you having to come back every three to six months and, you know, have a stent change procedure. Um, so I, I knew I'm waiting for more surgery anyway, um, which will be to, to, to basically take that tube out, cut the scar tissue off and re-implant it again. Um, but we were just letting my body heal for however long. Um, we were looking probably at the, the end of this year to do the surgery. Um, so this was just the checkup that I went to for basically to talk about planning the surgery and the my urologist wanted to make sure I was actually fully cancer free before she went and embarked on this surgery because it's a waste of her time if not really um so she booked me in for a scan went and did blood tests and then obviously we discussed the surgery and then I got a call at 7 30 the next morning and I was like oh no you never you know that's not a good call at that time in the morning um, and she just said, hey, your kidney function's off. Um, can you get to the hospital today? So I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm away. <laughs> so I said, I can get there for tomorrow. So she said, right, that's fine. Get there for tomorrow. Um, it could mean that your stent's blocked. 
and, and it had been in it seven, for seven months at this point. So that was a possibility that my stent was blocked because they should only be in three to six. Um, so I went that next day um, and they did an ultrasound first. They did my bloods again to recheck them and my kidney was still, my kidney function still wasn't right. Um, and they did an ultrasound, um, which my left kidney has always been the problem. But when the ultrasound came back, both my kidneys were, were really swollen. Um, it's called pyelonephritis, I think. But again, I might not be pronouncing that right. Um, but it just means you, your kidneys are under strain, the backing up, think it's not working how it should be. Um, so that was a bit of a, a, not a very nice, probably 24 hours, 48 hours, because when the doctor come back to talk to me about that, he, he was it's like he couldn't get his words out and he didn't really know what to say to me. And, and I was a bit like, what's going on? Because he said, you you know, you, your left is under strain, which we've always known about, but now your right is too. And it's it's unexplained. There's nothing that should be causing that. Um, so I said, right, is this sinister? And he just said, yeah, it could be, because it could mean that for me and from history that your cancer's come back and that's now blocking what where, where it should be. So I was like, right, okay. And he said, we need to either put nephrostomies back in to drain the pressure away and we need to do a scan. And obviously knowing how painful that first nephrostomy was, I was like, please just do the scan first. See if, see if we do need them and then we'll do the nephrostomies because I really don't want them. Um, so yeah, that was a bit of a, a not very nice stay. And it was the weekend that doctors were striking. So they did my ultrasound quite quickly but then they said I'm keeping you in tonight so they kept me in that Saturday night Sunday nothing happened because hospitals kind of go into shutdown as well on a weekend you know the scan departments aren't open and functioning as they should be plus then they were on skeleton skeleton staff um so I had to just kind of sit twiddling my thumbs in in the hospital like for hours on end waiting for them so then on the Monday um a doctor came quite early and he said, there's a mass, um, there's a mass block in your bladder. So I said, right, I've not got a bladder, so we need to try again. Um, but obviously to a cancer patient, you hear the word mass, you're like, it's come back. That's, it's, it's clearly come back. So I didn't know whether he just was assuming or there was something on my ultrasound showing a mass and he just used the word bladder incorrectly. I didn't really know what it was. So I said, I've not got a bladder. I said, I've, I've got a urostomy bag. And he was like, oh, right, okay. Um, and then he was discussing putting these nephrostomy bags in. Um, and he said, and then we can look to putting tubes in. So I said, when you say tubes, do you mean a stent? And he said, yeah. I said, well, I've already got a stent on my left side. And he went, oh, oh, well, it's blocked. I said, but how did you know it was blocked? Because you didn't know I had one. So, <laughs> so then he left and I just called the nurse and I just said, listen, I'm not having this nephrostomy fitted on my left side. I said, I'm fine if you do a right one, but please don't put a left side in until you've checked the stent and whatever. I said, he's, he said, I've got a bladder. He said, can you just check from my ultrasound if there is a mass? So because I've just, that's all I've taken from that conversation. So she went out on the ultrasound, looked and she said, it says no mass, no stones. So I was like, right, thank God. Um, Sorry, then, was he talking to the wrong patient then? Honestly, this and I, I, I hate I hate saying negative things about them because they're so understaffed and they're under strain and whatever. But you know, it, stuff like that, it's like, come yeah. on. Um, so I don't know. I think he was just surmising. I think he 
he was telling a patient of probably that's the normal probably procedure. There's probably something. He might have used the word mass as like a, a broad term. And, you know, there's something blocking it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be getting the back up. But he's used the term mass and to, to a cancer patient, that's like tumour. Um, so after that, they then fitted my right one first. And then I had a CT scan, which came back and didn't show anything really sinister or anything untoward which was great news but the, my left one my left kidney is still like really struggling so they put the left one in at that point too um and then last when did I go in on Tuesday of this week I went in for my left stent changed um and they've put a right one in so they've, they've got rid of the bags now thankfully so how do you feel over the last couple of days it's exhausting like I'm just tired um it's like my body can't get enough sleep but again I think that's because you're in fight or flight and I've spent that week well that weekend in hospital not knowing what was going on not knowing whether my cancer would return you kind of you're living on adrenaline and then when when that stops you kind of crash down again and your body plays catch up to just kind of go right you're fine you can relax um how do you stay positive through all of this because this, this, this is two years now and, and, you know, you've been hit numerous times <laughs> with a lot of shit. I honestly, I don't, I'd love to be able to give some pearls of wisdom to it. Because um, it's not like I do anything, you know, that I, I can pinpoint that that helps. Um, I've got great support around me and my my friends especially we've always been that group of friends you know if something's going wrong you make a joke out of it you laugh about it because that's all you can do there's there's I've said it before I just don't see the point in dwelling and sitting and question and you know there's there is some days where I'm like why me have I have I'm an axe-wielding murderer in a previous life because what have I done to deserve this um and there's, there's certain elements of it that I think, God, like I'll, I'll have down days, but they just, they don't last too long. And I'm very, I'm very good at just cracking on. Um, and just, you know, I think day-to-day -day life, you've got to just get on with it. And like this week, so I was in hospital Tuesday, Wednesday, and then on Thursday, I was back in the office and people are like, why are you here? But if I didn't go into the office, I'd probably have sat in my pyjamas, working in my pyjamas all day. Then that doesn't make you feel good. It's getting up. It's it's having a routine again and just doing normal things. Um, your mind your mind is it's an incredible tool, isn't it? Your mind is everything. Um, there's, there's an actual condition, isn't there, that people can... Is it Munchausen's? People make themselves think that they're sick. So if your mind can do that to you, like it can, the, the placebo effect that's been studied how many times you give somebody vitamin and tell them that it's going to make them better. And it does. So your mind, your mind's just the most powerful tool you can have in just overcoming things. I think that, that sounds really cliche, but, but it is, <laughs> that's all it is. Mind over matter, I suppose. You mentioned work there. How how much of how much work have you actually been able to do? 
I'm really lucky. I basically sit at a desk all day twiddling my thumbs. So, <laughs> so it's not a strenuous work for me. And my work are, I'm really, really lucky with how they've been with me throughout the whole, whole experience. They're so understanding. They would, if I needed things adjusting or if I needed to just take a, a lesser load for a while, they would do that for me. They're, they're so, so good. And I know not everyone's lucky to have that experience with work and, and you know, this, like I said, it's two years of back and two and me not being there and them being there and, and whatever else, but I am really lucky. And if I, if I did wake up one day and just think, God, I, I just can't get myself ready today to go. I just need to work from home. They're like, yeah, that's fine. Just need to send a text and say, I'll work from home today. That's fine. And that just gives me a bit of time to like rest then, I suppose. Good. So what does the next year or two look like for you? Because when did you turn 30? Uh, last December. So I'll be 31 in this December. Because, okay, you know, obviously turning 20, 30, 40, it can be a big part in everyone's life. You kind of reassess your life and stuff like that. <laughs> like with everything you've gone through, you more than anyone, I suppose. How, how has it looked in your head? How, how does it look for you? 30 was supposed to be my best year. But here we are again, kidneys. Um, so for me, I think it's ch it's changed in the last few months as well, really. Um, I really, this year, I really wanted to just get my health back. Um, and I wanted to explore the fertility side of it, you know, finally do the whole baby thing. Um, but unfortunately, life hasn't turned out like that. And me and my husband aren't together. Um, so for me now, I think it's just, it's focusing on me. It's getting like, say, probably back to the gym, um, and going on holidays. I want, all I want to do at the minute is like, I've got itchy feet. I just want to see things. I want to go and just, and I now, I've probably not got the luxury of just packing a bag and going traveling anymore because my health just won't allow that. I probably, and I probably would be on edge going somewhere for a period of time, but I think I just want to go and see things in bits if that means I get a week somewhere or you know two weeks somewhere for a little bit and or a city break or whatever I'll do it that way instead so traveling more so than probably I have been doing well we'll leave it there <laughs> I know you've got an Instagram like a special Instagram page set up haven't you do you just yeah. want everyone know what that is so it's picking cancer in the crotch. <laughs> it's underscore under every word, in between every word, sorry. Um, and that started out obviously as a cancer page um, and now kind of more stoma awareness. Um, I'm part of a campaign at the minute, which is kind of really pushing um, to change the narrative with stomas, both urostomy, clostomy, well, and ileostomy. Um, and I think that's, it's a really important thing to be part of at the minute so yeah if you want to go follow me that's great <laughs> if there is anyone in the same boat as you from a cancer point of view or a stoma point of view what last bit of advice would you give never be afraid to advocate for yourself I think I I am so grateful for the NHS they've saved my life numerous times um but 
at the start of my journey, I put all my trust, you put your trust into a medical professional and you think that they have your best interests at heart, um, which they, they do, um, but they also have a one-way, one-track one mind of doing that. Um, and I think you've got to sometimes question it, sometimes say, can we do it a different way? Is there an alternative to doing it that way? What's your reasoning for doing it that way? Um, but especially from the cancer side, um, if you think something's not right, push it. It's your life. It literally is your life. So whether you're annoying them, they're never going to remember that you annoyed them because probably 40 other people are annoying them the same day. Um, but if it's you'd rather I'd rather you'd rather be alive than than not not because you've just you didn't want to bother somebody that day. And obviously doing it on your terms as well. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you very much for coming on. That's been unbelievable. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me.